Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking with Jacob O'Brien, the creator of Biff. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on to talk about Biff, which I find a really interesting closure project and makes some very interesting uh, design decisions and trade-offs. So I'm keen to talk more about those. So to start off with, can you tell me about what is Biff? Why would someone pick Biff? What does it do for me? Sure. So Biff is a web framework for closure. It is full stack and monolithic, kind of in the style of, you know, like Rails or Django. With Biff, like you, it comes with like a startup command and you run this thing and it gives you a project and it's just kind of a simple CRUD app, but it's a working full stack app right out of the box. So it's there and it has like a set of libraries that it curates for you. So when you're developing a new project, you can just start out with that and then sort of tweak it as you go instead of taking the regular approach, right, of sort of curating your own set of libraries and wiring them all up together yourself. So as far as like who might be interested in Biff, just to give some background. So Biff is first and foremost a project for myself. I'm not trying to have Biff be like like the rails for closure or anything or have it be like this one big framework that everyone uses, right? It's just I have been a solo developer myself for a while. I've I spent about four and a half years, right up until a few weeks ago, as a solo bootstrapped founder. And so I spent a lot of times or a lot of time, you know, just developing my own web applications. And so Biff is a stack that is optimized for that use case as an early stage solo founder slash hobbyist kind of person. Great. So who would be like an example of someone who might not want to use Biff? There are like a handful of things, like factors that could go into it. Like the main one is just that like Biff is very much targeted towards like smaller and medium-sized applications. Like the point of Biff is to help you move quickly right away and then get out of your way as the project scales. But Biff doesn't really do a lot to manage complexity like as your web app does grow. Like, like it. So if you're in a situation like more of a corporate environment, say you've got like a large code base and you got a bunch of people on the team Biff is not necessarily going to do as much to help you manage that as, say, Fulcro would. So Fulcro mm-hmm. is, I kind of think of it as like the inverse of Biff, right? <laughs> and so so Fulcro comes with some powerful abstractions for managing, you know, these single page applications, and especially as they grow and it helps you like maintain the complexity, right? And so that's something that Biff just doesn't really do, right? Yeah, that makes sense. There's one very interesting feature I kind of, I'm terrified by and also really like, which is developing in prod with Biff. So tell us about you know where that feature come from and how does it work? Totally. Yeah. So just to give a brief explanation of what it is. So with developing in prod, after you've deployed your Biff application, you can run the command as BB prod dev. And as soon as you do that, first it'll open up an SSH tunnel and so you can connect to the NREPL server on your production application. Um, so your editor will be hooked up to prod. And then the other big thing that it does is whenever you save a file on your local file system, it will immediately deploy that code to production. The way it does that is, is a little Biff specific. So, so by default, Biff comes with some server provisioning stuff. 
And so it's not like container-based deployment. It's just, you know, kind of on a regular Ubuntu VM. And so you can deploy by just R-syncing your files over to the server. And also in particular, BIF is designed so that as much as possible, you can just do a regular like REPL evaluation of the new files. And then with late binding and things like everything will be taken into effect. So you don't necessarily have to restart the process mm-hmm. or refresh your code. So what that means, so again, so every you save a file and then everything or the changed files, at least, they all get R-synced up to the server. They all get evaluated and, and boom, they're all deployed with zero downtime hopefully, uh, assuming you didn't <laughs> screw up anything. <laughs> so that's what it is. And as far as where that came from, I sort of came up with the idea of maybe wanting to set that up. I think it was about a year and a half ago, maybe late 2021. Yeah, because I, I was still like working full-time on sort of my startup ideas and things. But as one does, I, I always have ideas for like little side projects and just kind of weekend tools that I'd like to build, Mm -hmm. um, but just didn't really have a lot of time. Right. Yeah. And so I was wondering about, you know, like what would be the most convenient possible setup so that if I have like an hour on the weekend and I want to code up something quick, (laughs) I want to make it as easy as possible to just get into whatever that project is and write a bit of code and just have it deployed and so that was kind of the idea i came up with like what if you just there's no more build or deploy pipeline it's just you're just hacking away on the production app (laughs) (laughs) and so because there's no uberjar stage it's just source files yeah in production as well you could just kind of work 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 in prod eventually you'd commit and i guess do a a real deploy, which would effectively do kind of no changes because yeah, it's already all there. Yeah, and in fact, you don't like I've with my own apps. It's been a long time since I've like I rarely do like a quote unquote real deploy. <laughs> <laughs> and what I do often do is after I've had a session of you know this developing in prod, at least just locally, I will start up the app just in case. You know, like if you define a function and then you delete it, but you're still referencing it somewhere, you know, that's kind of the standard issue with REPL-driven development, right? So I I find, though, if I just start up the app locally, that pretty much catches all of those kinds of issues. And and other than that, I haven't ran into any issues so far (laughs) with (laughs) prod development. Right. So Biff, you know, is sort of a full sort of top-to-bottom development stack and one of those parts is persistence or a database and you make the interesting and exciting choice of XTDB. So tell me about how did you come to use XTDB? It's not sort of like the obvious, you know, like I think Postgres or perhaps MySQL would be the sort of default choice for a lot of people. So why XTDB and what do you find really good about it, especially from the perspective of a sort of solo developer? Yeah, sure. The reason I got into XTDB was, so I started out with Datomic. Um, so so definitely like read a lot of posts and, and watched videos and, and stuff about Datomic and, and got interested in that space a lot. And just in, in kind of the the idea of an immutable database, right? So like, mm-hmm. like you know, Clojure, we have all our functional programming and our immutable data structures. 
but then you're putting it on top of, you know, say Postgres, which is is kind of a standard paradigm, like a, a you know, just you're mutating in, in place sort of, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Datomic has this idea of, you know, it's immutable. So like you have this, like when you're querying, you have this snapshot of the database. And, and so you can treat the entire database as just like this immutable value and you can pass it around to your functions and, and they're still pure functions. Um, also, another factor is just kind of closure ergonomics. It's kind of nice, like like these, both with the Atomic and XTDB, it's there. It's easy to, you know, just put normal hash maps in and out of them, right? And, and not necessarily have this kind of serialization layer in between. But anyway, so I was interested in Datomic and I was building things with Datomic for quite a bit. At the time, I ended up feeling like it was a little bit overkill for my use case, just because, um, you know, again, this was before Datomic was, you know, made free. So maybe if if it was developed now, maybe I would have gone on with Datomic for longer. I don't know. But at the time, like I had tried Datomic Cloud Ions, which were very cool and very much overkill for what I was doing <laughs> as a solo founder. And Datomic, you know, the pure version or Datomic Pro, whatever it was called, also very interesting, but there's just these issues with like the licensing because, you know, 5,000 bucks a year and just doesn't really fit with like a solo founder, right? Without funding. So still like, I liked Datomic a lot, but it just didn't feel like it was a great fit for my situation, right? Whereas XTDB, it's, it's open source, it was free. And and there are also some thing like several things that I actually like about it more than Datomic. It's very easy to, like from the operational standpoint, it's very easy to deploy because it's just it's just part of your application process. Like you don't need like a separate transactor process running somewhere. You just bundle it all up in one thing. And so for Biff, that's very nice because it makes the the deployment story you know very easy. It's just you know here's this one process. You just deploy this one thing. So the the database is running yeah you know, in the same JVM as your app yeah yeah at least part of it because it has a storage backend right and so in, in prod for you know quote unquote real app you'd probably want to use say like a managed Postgres instance so like that part is separate of course but the indexer is in your inside of your JVM process so with when you're submitting a transaction, you know, that goes through Postgres, but then this XTDB part that's in your JVM process is taking those new transactions from Postgres and indexing them just on whatever machine is, is running that JVM process, right? Gotcha. Do you take advantage, or in your projects, have you taken advantage much of the time traveling by temporality aspect of XTDB, or do you just find it like a, a really ergonomic database to use? in general yeah at my own stage it's just the latter i it's very ergonomic i have not really used by temporality at all i have used i guess you'd call it mono temporality <laughs> um, <laughs> and just you know kind of the same as datomic provides like for example i find it's helpful like if you create a bunch of documents and they have these attributes on them and then you decide oh i actually need to know at what time was this specific attribute first set? 
And so I have at times, you know, gone back into the history and, and, and looked at on all the documents. Okay, when was that set? And then I'll create like a new attribute on all those documents. And, and so I'll, I'll be running this migration, mm-hmm. basically. So those kinds of things I have used monotemporality, basically. Mm-hmm. At my stage, I, again, like the bitemporality hasn't really been a factor. I think it very well could be if any of my ideas had gotten past the, you know, product market fit stage, I think the probability of me needing it would go up a lot, but just in sort of the early solo stage hasn't been a huge thing yet. Great. Another choice, which is interesting and exciting, but maybe one not everyone's come across is HTMX. So tell us a little bit about what is HTMX and what do you like it for Biff? Sure. So HTMX, I guess just to give a brief surface level description of like what it is, it is a lightweight JavaScript library. It, so it's, it's written in JavaScript, and, but you don't write JavaScript to use it. And it lets you make HTTP requests that replace part of a web page. So to explain why that might be helpful is, so say you're starting with a standard server-side rendered application where, you know, you're not using any JavaScript, you're just doing, you got plain form posts and and links you're clicking on to navigate, right? So if you do a normal form post that way, it reloads the entire page. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have any kind of interaction, like, you know, say you're doing something like a Twitter clone where you got like a timeline of posts and maybe there's a like button and you want to click the like button. And as soon as you click that like button, the whole page is going to refresh. And so it's going to have to, Either it'll have to have like the previous version of that timeline you were viewing cached somewhere, or it'll just show you a different timeline. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't do that, right? But the rest of the state is lost and you'll have to recompute the timeline and all this stuff. Whereas HTMX is just like, okay, well, instead of like going all the way to this sort of heavy client architecture with SPAs, right? Like what if we just tweaked that model of server-side rendering a little bit So instead of having to reload the entire page, you could just reload like a small section of the HTML. So in this example, like you click the like button and on the back end, like it it looks pretty much the same. Like you've got some post endpoint that's getting the data and it changes the stuff in the database and blah, blah, blah. But then instead of like returning the entire page or redirecting you back to the endpoint for the entire page, it just returns a snippet for that like button. And maybe the like button, now it's, you know, styled differently so you can see it's the post has been liked, right? Mm-hmm. So you return that little snippet of HTML and then HTMX will replace the like button with that new snippet. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And... Maybe people have heard about HTMX before. What kind of really made it click for me was looking at the way Biff does it in where you will, you've defined a form as part of your HTML page and it's a separate function that's called as part of your larger HTML rendering. And that form has the form post route. That form has the way to render itself in the form. And when you click the button, it posts the form to the server and the server will update the state and it will re-render just that little snippet of the form that you were calling the first time and send that down as HTML. So it's almost like the form is calling itself 
from the server uh, was how I thought about it. Yeah, that's kind of a good way. And I think that's also a nice demonstration of how well HTMX works with Clojure specifically. Because the great thing about Clojure is it's just data, quote unquote, right? And, or not just data, but it's just functions too, right? Like if, you know, you're using Hiccup or Rum or whatever to render your app in Clojure, like if you want to take a, a section of HTML and make it reusable, like it's just a function, right? It's very easy to just pull out a bit of HTML and just have that in this standalone function, right? And that works excellently with HTMX because... HTMX depends on having these sort of standalone reusable snippets of HTML that can be called by themselves. And so you can reiterate what you were just saying, like you can have, so for a form, you've got the standalone function that's rendering your form. And so when someone loads the initial page, that initial whole page can call that function as part of its own body. But then you can also set up a completely separate endpoint, like a post endpoint or something and the handler for that post endpoint is just the function for just the form. And it really works quite nicely. Yeah, I really like the philosophy of HTMX. I think it yeah, is, a, is a pretty interesting idea. I mean, it's not, I think TurboLinks from Rails has a very well similar, similar theory or philosophy, perhaps about it with some differences. Yeah, it's kind of in the same, like there are a handful of things in like the general approach, I call it HTML over the wire, which I think that that's like the term that I think TurboLinks has on their webpage, right? So TurboLinks and HTMX and, and another one is Phoenix Live View. Right, um, yes. I've never used it and I'm not extremely familiar with how it works, but they all kind of share this philosophy of moving back to more of a thin client type of architecture where you're doing more of the business logic on the back end and rendering the HTML on the back end and just kind of injecting it to the front end in one way or another. Yeah, neat. One other thing which I thought, well, there's many things I think are interesting about Biff, but what next thing I think is interesting about Biff is the component system and that you've got you know your own component system. It's not using Integrant or component, you know, the uh, the the traditional component library or, or mount. mount or yeah there's there's many at this point how did you think about component systems and what's different about yours sure yeah so partially this goes back to what i was saying before is how biff is targeted at solo developers and smaller to medium size applications and so a large part of what i'm doing with the design philosophy and and things is trying to make it minimalist like like and figuring out like what is the simplest possible thing i can do that will work for what i need it to do so with the component system maybe i can just kind of explain briefly like how that works yeah for the listeners and it's almost like i i wouldn't call it like its own component library because it's it's basically just the reduce function (laughs) it's i'd probably call it more of a, a pattern and because, yeah, the entire implementation for it is now it's it's just like when you make a new Biff app, it's just copied into your application. Like there's not even any like Biff library functions related to this component system. Right. So the way it works is you have these components and a component is just a function and a component function will take as a single parameter a system map. And so it's kind of 
structured similarly to integrant or component where where you have this single big system map that you know has everything in it right as mm -hmm. opposed to mount which does things a bit differently so you have these functions takes the system map and it does something to that system map and then passes it on to the next component function and if it starts some sort of stateful resource that needs to be shut down it just adds a stop function to one of the keys in that map it's like biff slash stop i think mm -hmm. so so anyway so like when you start the system you just you take like an initial system map that maybe has some references to your code and then you have a list of these component functions and you just thread the system map through all of these component functions mm -hmm. so it's very lightweight and it doesn't like there's lots of fancy things that integrant and the others do that this does not like like being able to restart parts of a system or mm -hmm. mock out different parts. But basically, like I came to this system. So I originally used Mount for a lot of, or for all of my own apps for a while. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to look at Integrant and trying to figure out how that worked and reading the source of Integrant. And that's kind of what, while I was reading through the source of Integrant is when I had this epiphany of when I realized, oh, like it's it's really just, you could just think of it as a function, right? And so I had that idea. And so that's when I ended up just developing this thing. So there are a few things I like about that. So one, I like that since components are these functions, it's very easy to provide them in library code. So like Biff comes with a set of seven or eight of these component functions, and those are all defined in library code. In your template application, like, like it pastes in a list of those functions, but the implementations are kind of hidden away. And, and if you want, you can swap them out or do whatever. But anyway, so that's been nice. So I can sort of pull those out of the template project. The other thing is just that I guess kind of like I mentioned, I'm trying to make things as minimalist as possible, and that's beneficial largely from like a pedagogical perspective, you might say. I think a lot about what parts of Biff do I really want to make sure that the user understands and which parts is it okay to kind of hide the implementation details, right? Right. And the component system is just so important for people to really know how that works. And so I, the thing I love about this setup is that, like one, it's enough. Like, yes, it doesn't have like as many features as some of these other things do, but it's got the essentials, at least in my own experience. And then given that, it's also like, it's immediately clear how it works. Like you open up, you know, your new Biff app and the entire implementation for how these components are wired together is just right there in your app. It's like five lines of code. Mm -hmm. maybe another four lines for there's a refresh function, which lets you, you know, stop all the components and reload your code and bring them all up again. And so just right away, like, you know how it works. I don't know. It might not be obvious, but hopefully it's not too hard to figure out how you can, you know, if you want to change the way one of those components works, like you can just write your own function and just replace it or add your own components. Right. So I found myself being slightly confused by Biff's component system because i was looking at it and i was like all right where's the rest of it like what is this calling into like where's the other bits um, like, there's got to be more right? yeah. like nope nope <laughs> so you touched on biff you know there's the separation between templated code and library code yeah what is the story for upgrading a biff project as you add new features to it 
Yeah, totally. So there is trade-off. And so another one of the design points of Biff that I think about a lot is when to put things in the template project and when to put things in the library code. And so again, just to be explicit for listeners, like, you know, the way you start a new Biff app and, and there are these two parts, right? So there's some code that's copied and pasted into your new project and there's some code that's implemented as library functions. And so as far as like where to put certain code, like the benefits of library code is basically that upgrading is easier for one thing. You just bump the Biff dependency in your debs.edn file, right? Right. And then also there's less cognitive load because at least for myself, I find like any code that's copied and pasted into my project, it feels like like something I need to understand, if that makes mm. sense, right? Yeah. Like it's, there's more surface area, right? Whereas if it's not in there, if it's in some library thing, then hopefully that means like it's a solid enough abstraction that for the time being, I can just, you know, not worry about the implementation of it. So those are the two benefits. The downside is that it's harder to change. And this is especially relevant with framework code, which is like framework code where it's, you know, it's orchestrating your application code, right? It's higher than you in the stack trace. Mm. And there is, and that's kind of the downside of frameworks is that, you know, if that code needs to change, sometimes it's hard to change that code in many frameworks, right? Yeah. And so the benefit of putting things in the template project is that it's easier to change that code. So for a lot of the framework code, I mean, like we were just talking about the implementation of the component system, that's just in the template code. So it's easy to change. It's easy to understand and things. So now, okay. Now getting back to the question you actually asked is about the, the upgrade story. So basically there are two things, two parts of upgrading. So there's upgrading the BIF dependency, which is easy. You just bump the, the BIF dependency. <laughs> you just do it, right? <laughs> and the other part is the template code. And so what I do, whenever I make a BIF release, I so on GitHub, I, I make a release on GitHub, right? And I, I write down all the steps that you need to take. And I'm, I try to be quite meticulous about this. And so it'll have you know explicit instructions for bumping the dependency. And it will list for any changes I make in the template project it will tell you like, okay, I made this change and and here is, I'll, I'll separate each change into like a separate commit. Mm -hmm. So you can click on this link and see a commit that demonstrates, you know, how was this change made in the template project? And then I also mark if it is optional or not. So a lot of the times, hopefully all of the times for the most part, mm -hmm. the template project changes are optional. So like this GitHub release, like I say, you know, here's what it does. Here's why I did it. Just FYI, if you want to make that same change in your project, you can. And here's how you can do that. But like, you don't have to. So for most of the releases, like the only required part of upgrading is just bumping the dependency. So I certainly try to minimize breaking changes there. Gotcha. That makes sense. And Bill can just take a look up uh, link. Uh, some of the releases in the show notes so people can kind of get a sense of what it's like but it's you know very reasonable rename this file use this function instead of this other function so and i guess you know as long as you know you're sort of keeping up to date reasonably ish with it you know it's not like it's a it doesn't seem like it would be a huge burden uh, for people to track biff yeah hopefully not i'd also say biff has settled down a fair amount 
I don't remember if I mentioned this or not, but basically about like a year and a half ago is when Biff sort of finally hit a point of more stability and, and being ready for, you know, more community adoption, right? But even after that for, I don't know, eight months or a year or so, I was still kind of figuring out exactly, you know, how do I want it to be structured and stuff. But honestly, more recently, like it's, I haven't been doing much work on like the code or the, or especially not the structure, like the, like as of right now, there are no structural changes that I have in mind or that I think will be needed. So, so Mm -hmm. going forward, there is likely to be fairly little of those kind of template project updates anyway, at least less than there's been in the past year. Great. So you've got a template script or a way to run the server on an Ubuntu server. If I wanted to, say, use Heroku or some other service that wasn't, you know, just like a a bare VM, what would be the process of doing that? Yeah, so the main thing... So short answer is you're on your own. <laughs> but <laughs> the, I mean, the longer answer is, I mean, it's not necessarily different from just any any other closure mm-hmm. app, I guess. Like you'll need a Docker file. This is one of the things on my to-do list. I'm planning to write a how-to document that, you know, has, say, like an example Docker file and says, okay, if you want to deploy it to some sort of container-based platform and you know kubernetes or whatever if enterprise you know, you can, <laughs> it'll be important for my my long-term consulting revenue strategy right <laughs> so so i want to have this how-to document right this have like a docker file and says okay like like if you want to deploy here like here's a docker file like stick this in your project and here's maybe like an extra babashka task like stick this in your tasks file and now you can like run a bb build or or, or bb enterprise deploy or whatever <laughs> and and it'll you know build this docker file and do whatever it needs to do for the most part i think there may be a couple like kind of loose ends that i need to fix like there's one part of the app where when it's serving the CSS file, it like loads it with the closure Java IO yep. file, whatever that file, right? To like read the modified time for cache busting purposes. But I think that actually breaks if it's in an Uber jar. Yeah. So like like there might be one or two things I need to fix with that. Like like other than that, like if just kind of more generally, if you're wanting to deploy to you know a container based thing and and presumably having like multiple of these droplets and, and or not droplets but like containers and instances the main thing is just you'll want to pay attention to how you're writing your application code cuz biff does come with some convenient things like scheduled tasks like cron jobs basically and it comes with some in memory queues and things but you'll just want to be aware that, you know, if you're scaling your Biff app up to have multiple instances, you'll need probably a different solution for running cron jobs, right? So you don't have, you know, all your things doing that kind of thing. Gotcha. One other thing we haven't talked about yet is Tailwind, ah, yes. which I think Tailwind's relatively well known now, but for people who are not familiar with it, you know, what is Tailwind and why do you like it for Biff? Sure. Yeah. So Tailwind, it's a CSS library approach thing. And it's built on utility classes. And I like it a lot, actually, kind of from a closure 
simplicity perspective, because the idea of tailwind is you're saying, okay, let's take CSS and sort of quote unquote decomplect it into these, like a bunch of these tiny little utility classes, mm-hmm. right? That are all, they're composable and they're separate and stuff. And so the idea is instead, like for the most part, like you don't need to write too much CSS, like in a regular CSS file or anything, but you just put classes on your components. And so the, it changes the method of abstraction that you do with CSS. So instead of doing sort of the typical, you know, cascading thing, which mm-hmm. CSS is named for, it's basically like you probably have some sort of component system for your HTML to make that reusable anyway, like React or, or Enclosure, we just use plain functions, right, with Hiccup. And so the idea is just, why don't you just reuse that system to make your CSS reusable too? So you just, you have these components and you just stick some classes on them and you're good to go. That seemed like a good explanation. <laughs> yeah. So for, like you see in you know other libraries and systems, people seem to get quite worked up about the idea of sort of these isolated components and sort of reusability and separation of concerns yeah it feels like a pretty natural fit to closures like a base component could just be like a vector of classes and more classes on to the end of that vector and it's not much more complicated than that i think yeah or or even you know like a set and you can like dissociate or like disjoin <laughs> things or union or whatever you want to do right yeah so what have you got planned for the future of Biff? So as I mentioned, I, I don't have too many like code structural things. There are a few code related things that I have in mind, but mostly it's documentation. So probably talk mostly about documentation, but maybe let me just get the code things out of the way because there are some interesting things there. So so first, like on my immediate to-do list right now, I've got kind of a handful of sort of cleanup issues like there are a few issues on the github and bugs and and little enhancements and things there is one big thing that has sort of just been germinating in my head for a little while and that is biff's story on derived data which is probably the biggest issue that i have had in my own apps so far as developing with biff and, and this wouldn't really be specific to biff but it's a very common problem is just dealing with efficient querying of denormalized data. So um, so when you're very first starting getting out, like, you know, you don't have a whole lot of data in your database, right? And and whatever query you run, it's going to be fast, right? But then as, as soon as you start to get a few users, you often run into these situations where, so say, for example, like you are building, again, say some sort of Twitter clone and you want to have like a little part of the app that shows, you know, how many unread direct messages Mm -hmm. does the user have right and so you might do some query that says like okay query for all of this user's messages and filter by the ones that haven't been read yet and tell me how many there were and that's great until it takes 200 milliseconds to run or two seconds to run or something (laughs) depending on on what it is you're doing and then your pages slow down and it just doesn't work right so it's got to be faster and that kind of problem is just pervasive, especially like my, I feel like I've 
not like shot myself in the foot here, but it's just, it's a problem that I feel like I am running into sooner than most people would because the things that I build are usually recommender systems mm-hmm. and they're very read heavy and run lots of complicated queries even if you don't have that many users, which I don't. (laughs) I have like 50 daily active users on the main app I've been developing right now. And even that, like it ends up generating a fair amount of data and you're running these queries. Like, so I mean, a single user, you know, you sign up and it's, so the thing I'm building, it's a reader app. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a souped up RSS reader and you got a single user and they upload their OPML file and you got, you could have like a thousand RSS feeds in there. Right. (laughs) And, and like, I want to, I have this fancy ranking algorithm that takes all these things you subscribe to and sorts them out with its, you know, it's AI thingamajig. Like right away, you've got like, you know, a thousand RSS feeds, 90,000 items that you're querying for (laughs) and, and stuff. I'm just getting hit with these kinds of problems all the time. And it's just a pain. So anyway, I'd really like Biff to have some sort of story for how can you get some like materialized views or something mm-hmm. so you can denormalize your data and be able to create effectively and not just have these kinds of issues just littered throughout your entire code base. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's some interesting things. Actually, with, with XTDB, I think there are some very interesting possibilities there. But, so that might be coming up. That is interesting. So maybe you're not quite ready to talk about this yet, but are you imagining you'd sort of have like sort of persistent derived data sort of background tables or that kind of way of querying it or is it in memory or what would you? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, probably some sort of persistent thing. The approach that I'm most interested in looking into, which actually just I started thinking about because a few days ago, someone asked about derived data on the XTDB Slack channel and, and Jeremy and mentioned like, oh, well, you know, one thing you could do is XTDB comes, like it has sort of an advanced API for making secondary indexes. Mm-hmm. And so they use this for, there's a Lucene, I think, it, yeah, Lucene, like for full text search, mm-hmm. you can like do this add-on thing and it'll add this extra index for maintaining this full text search index thing, right? And so apparently, based on Jeremy's comment, it seems like it would not be absurd to try to use some of that same infrastructure to make your own indexes for, you know, mm-hmm. application data. And so so I, I have not looked at the API for that at all. I know nothing more than what I've just said, <laughs> but I'm very interested to look into that and see if that might be a possible, like maybe with Biff, maybe I can sort of put a layer on top of that and provide an easy to use sort of interface for defining your own application level derived data things. I don't know. So that could be one thing. Other than that, like, like I guess the standard approach might be like, you know, have some other sort of queue system where you're taking the transactions from XTDB and putting them in some sort of queue, probably not Kafka, maybe something more lightweight, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For Biff. And then doing some sort of streaming computation, something or other, and then either you pipe them back into XTDB's transactions or you put them into some other store like SQLite or something. So anyway, that's what I've got going on in my head so far. Nice. And the other part of the Biff work that you're working on next is non-code related. 
IS documentation. And, and this also comes into the closureists together funding. Yeah. Which is great. So Biff, so for the uninitiated, Biff has been sponsored again by Closures Together, which thank you. And and you should all donate to Closures Together. Um <laughs> And, and also, thank you to Juxt, who has been a longtime corporate sponsor for Biff. So thank you there. Got to give my shout out to my sponsors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and also have several individual sponsors. But anyway, 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 the documentation. So the Closures Together grant that I have submitted recently, or a few months ago, is I'd like to add a bunch more documentation to Biff. It has quite a bit of documentation. It has what I call the core documentation. So there's reference documentation. There is a tutorial, which the tutorial also is specifically funded by Closures Together. And there's API. Like I got doc strings and all of the functions and things. And so those are there and in place. What I would like to do next is add sort of like a second layer of documentation. And there are basically like three areas that I'm wanting to address. And this will be a long-term project because there's a lot there. But one area is I'd like to help people understand more how Biff works under the hood. So one of the downsides of using a framework is that it's easy to get going without ever developing a strong understanding of how the thing works under the hood. And so right. when you need to change something, you don't necessarily know how to do it. One way I've addressed that is just by trying to make Biff fairly lightweight. So FYI, if you want to know how Biff works under the hood, it's 2,000 lines of code. You can just read it and boom, you'll be an expert. What I'm envisioning is I'd like to write a series of guides or tutorials or something that kind of show you how to make a Biff web app without using Biff. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, you know, say we're going to take Biff's architecture, like use it as inspiration, but just take you through the each of the parts and just show you how would you code that up yourself like just with the other libraries that are already in the ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? So like you'll start out with like, you know, here's how you make a static web page and here's how you add a web server and then a database and middleware and blah, blah, blah. So, so that's the first thing. And so that'll just be focused on how Biff is structured currently. So it'll just introduce you to like XTDB and HTMX and the other components that are in Biff already. And that's kind of, an attempt to keep the scope down. So it's not just like, here's an intro to like all of Clojure web development, <laughs> you know, all the libraries <laughs> up there, right? So that part is more for the second part of the documentation, <laughs> which is I'd like to write some how-to guides, especially how-to guides for showing how to replace Biff's default components. Because so a core design principle of Biff is like, I want it to be batteries included, like, like out of the box, it's got everything you need, but I want it also to be disassemblable. So like any part of Biff, if you want something different, like you can change it. You're not stuck inside this framework. And so I'd like to write a handful of how-to documents that show exactly like, okay, like here is a you know standard Biff app we just created. And how would you take this and say, replace XTDB with Postgres, or maybe remove HTMX and use reframe instead, or things like that, right? And so that's kind of the other side of it. Like first you want to understand like what's there now, and then you want to understand like how could you add in other stuff and change it however you want. And then the third and final main piece of documentation is I want to write 
more some background essays, especially ones that give more of a rationale of like why has Biff chosen the components that it has? So like, okay, you, like you know how to replace XTDB if you want, or how to replace HTMX, but like, like, are you sure you want to? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> basically, like, like I, I, I want to make sure like people know, like, just be aware that XTDB is the world's greatest database. And, and so you know, like, here's you know the reasons why I think it's great and a great thing for Biff users, but also, you know, here are some reasons why, like, situations where, you know, maybe Postgres or Datomic or MongoDB might be a better choice or something, you know? Right. Is there anyone you'd like to thank or mention other than the ones you've already touched on? Yeah, totally. So first of all, just anyone who's used Biff or commented about it or anything, like Biff actually has users, which I think is wonderful and incredible. Yeah. So I've been very happy about that and, and very grateful for you know, everyone who has put in some time to try it out. And also sponsors, I've mentioned sponsors already, got, you know, Jext and Closures together and several other people on GitHub sponsors. Hugely appreciated. Especially like the XTDB team is, I've loved like the work they put out and very appreciative of them doing that. And then just, Biff has all these components in it, right? Like there's XTDB and, and several libraries from Matos and like Mali and read it or write it or however you say that. <laughs> and, you know, all these, and so, so obviously, like Biff is just like the vast, vast majority of Biff, like work in Biff has been done by other people, right? And Biff is just kind of like gluing these pieces back together. And so Biff would really be nothing without these other libraries that people have developed. Yeah. Oh, and then one last shout out to Oliver Caldwell, who is excellent and is a developer of the Conjure Vim plugin, which I use every day and love. So, you, and he has a GitHub sponsors uh-huh. thing set up. So, everyone should go sponsor him, FYI. All right. I will <laughs> add a link uh, in the show notes. Yeah. And Closure Together is happy to sponsor Biff again. I think it's a really exciting project. Uh, and in fact, Closure Together has a members website, which is very minimal at the moment. It does not very much at all. It's basically a front end to, to Stripe and updating a few little things and i wrote it in sort of the traditional web app way of cobbling together you know different libraries and pieces and i'm now very seriously reconsidering i think biff might actually be just the ticket for this sort of small self-contained project which doesn't need to do very much but there's some cracks showing in in what i've written and yeah i want to thank uh some of the the company members in closures together who've supported this work as well, Latacora, Rome Research, Whimsical, Matosin, uh, names already come up once, uh, Pitch, Newbank, Cisco, Stylix, Logseek, Juxt, another name that's come up a few times here, Salita, Adgoji, Next Journal, Closure Stream, Shortcut, Flexiana, Toyakumo, Griffin, Doctronic, 180, Seguros, and Crewbank. All of these companies have been really generous to support closures together and yeah i really appreciate everything they've done for closures together all right and you've touched on a couple of times your apps that you've worked on so do you want to just give people you know the sales pitch and links to those apps and we can put them in the show notes too sure yeah so the main one is called yakread so it's at yakread.com and that is a so it's a reading app so i think i mentioned it's it's Kind of think of it as like an RSS reader plus plus. Uh, so, so it does RSS 
feed, I guess I should say ink RSS reader, since we're in Closure Land. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it does RSS feeds and it does newsletters. So you can subscribe to email newsletters and, and you can put bookmarks in there. And the key thing that it does is it has a ranking algorithm. So it tries to give you a good mix between sort of having control that you would have with like a chronological feed and not missing stuff, but also getting the benefits of a ranking algorithm that can learn from your history and figure out like, you know, how to surface things that you want to read. Because if you have more than about three subscriptions, you're probably not reading every single item that they're putting out. (laughs) So first of all, it gives you this daily digest email and that has several parts. Like it has like a list of the new subscription, like posts from that day and then algorithmic section. And there's a web app that has more of an algorithmic timeline too. So anyway, if you like to read stuff on the internet, definitely check out YakRead. And that's the main thing. I have some, the main other previous app that I've built, and this one is more in maintenance mode. It's called The Sample. That's Mm thesample.ai. That also is kind of a, a recommendation ranking algorithm thing. It's a newsletter recommender system. So it's, it does discovery exclusively. So like you sign up, and then it'll use the fancy, you know, machine learning algorithmic thing to pick mm-hmm. some newsletter and it'll forward that newsletter to you. And both Yakut and the sample, they have like a an advertising component built in. So if you are a newsletter publisher, there's like a native self-serve ad thing you can sign up for and advertise your newsletter. Cool. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to mention in closing? I guess the one thing is I'm going to try really hard to be at the conj next year. I have young kids, so it hasn't really been an option <laughs> the past couple of years, but they'll be a little bit older by the time the next one rolls around. And if I'm really lucky, maybe I can get my new employer to, to send me there because they're a closure shop too. Nice. So hopefully I'll see someone there. Oh, and I might, maybe I can even get some Biff t-shirts. And so if you want to wear a Biff t-shirt to the conj and... And we'll just take over, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just let me know. Yeah. I have young kids too. So I know that challenge of wanting to go to things uh, (laughs) are a little way away. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. This was a pleasure talking to you and uh, looking forward to using Biff some more. Thanks. Absolutely. Yep. See ya.